It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Tim Bedall, and I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here at Village Bible Church. And I'm going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Acts as we continue in our series that we've entitled Unstoppable. We've been looking at Luke's gospel of the early church and how God used people uh, to change the world around them. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and through our own perseverance of faith, we can too, like the early church, effect great change for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. And and we've been learning through their example and through their modeling that an ordinary group of people can do extraordinary things with the help of an extraordinary God. And this morning we pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 20. If you uh, don't have a a Bible with you this morning, you can grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 929. And we find ourselves uh, looking at Paul's third missionary journey. He's been moving from city to city, and as you can see on the map in front of you, uh, he has been moving through the area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and into Greece, which was ancient Macedonia. And you can see the many different towns. Each of those towns are places that Paul would stop. And we find ourselves this morning in the city of Miletus. They're in the middle of the map in the uh, coastal part of Asia Minor on the Aegean Sea. And uh, Paul is going to meet in Miletus a group of Ephesian elders of the church in Ephesus that he had started. In each of these different cities, he started churches, and he had gone about on on a couple different occasions to go and encourage and strengthen the church and to make sure that everything was going well, helping them with any problems that they have. But this visit in Miletus, Paul is on his way, as you can see, all the way down that dotted line to the city of Jerusalem. Now, he's going to Jerusalem uh, to give a gift that he has collected from all of these different Gentile churches that he has started to give to a Jewish congregation in Jerusalem money that they're in need of because of a ye- of years of famine that have taken place in the city of Jerusalem and in the area of Judea. And so Paul is wanting to get there and he makes a stop in Miletus on the coastal uh, part of Asia and he stops and he says, go get the Ephesian elders and bring them to me while I'm here for the short stay in Miletus. I have some words to share with them because Paul recognizes and knows that this is his last opportunity to say goodbye to them because Paul knows that his ministry is no longer going to go through Ephesus, but it will inevitably end up in Rome where he will be martyred for the faith and he will lose his life uh, for the glory of God. And he wants to share some things because the church at Ephesus was a church he had come to love. He had been in Ephesus longer um, than any other church except for the church in Corinth. And what we have this morning is Paul's farewell address to the people of God, especially to a group of elders that he had no doubt been a part of appointing and, and placing before the people of God. And a couple things that I want to, as we before we even get into our text this morning, a couple things that I want you to see as we look at uh, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse um, Verse 17, I needed to turn the page, verse 17. And the first thing is, is just like in the church in Ephesus, we here at Village Bible Church are led by a group of men called elders. Now the Bible talks about elders using three words. It uses three Greek words to tell us about the role and the man who is to fill that role. 
The first word is presbyteroi, which means he is a mature man, spiritually mature, a man who has walked with the Lord and walked around the schemes of the devil for a long time. So he's not given to pride when he's given this responsibility. Presbyteroi, a mature man. Then it is the episcopoi, the overseer, the one who oversees the affairs and the, and over the lives of other people. And so this mature man is to be given the charge of overseeing or leading others into a clear and, and, uh, and, and holy walk before God. So we've got presbyteroi, a mature man, episkopoi, a man who oversees, and then we get the Greek word poimen, which means to shepherd. So we have a mature man whose job is to oversee the affairs of the church and the affairs of others, and the process of how he is to do that is to shepherd God's people as Jesus the good shepherd has done. Now, we are told every time in the uh, New Testament that this elder doesn't do this job by himself, but he is to do it with other elders. So notice the heading as mine is in my Bible. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. That's one church with a group of elders who is given the job of overseeing and leading the church as mature men whose job is to shepherd the flock under their care. And so how awesome is it that here 2,000 years later, here the church at, at Village Bible is positioning itself and structuring itself under the same headings as the New Testament church did as well. Now, while our scripture this morning is a word to those elders... And I will tell you, the elders in my midst, as I did the first service, you need to be listening, just as I, an elder, need to be listening to my own words, that this word is, first of all, primarily for them. So if you're a shepherding elder this morning, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to have you uh, go ahead and stand up. I know they're not all in this uh, midst, but if you're a shepherding elder here at Sugar Grove, stand up. Oh, they're popping up here. There we go. All right. This word is for you guys. Don't sit down yet. This word is for you because you have been given the job. I want you men to look around. You have been given by God a foster care relationship to these people. And don't forget the first service people as well. And because of that, we need to, as elders, hear what God has to say to us today. Now, those who are sitting, I would ask and I would cover that you pray for these men, okay? Pray for their families, pray for their spouses, pray for their marriages. Pray that they would live lives that would live in accordance to the Scriptures so that as they lead their own lives well, that they would leave, lead us as a flock as well. Thank you guys, you may be seated. But according to the interpretation of Scripture, we aren't to just look at what is the closest interpretation. That is to our elders, because Paul is talking to a group of elders. But there is much we can glean as a people of God of how we are to live our lives and how we are to order our lives. And so there is great truth there. The final thing I want you to notice is this address that is given to elders but has application to us all is a farewell address. Paul is going to say, I'm leaving. Here are my kind of lasting words to you. Here are what is my heart for you so that you might, after I leave, honor God and honor the church that you lead. 
in farewells and goodbyes, it is good for us to take stock into what we've done and what we are doing. And so this morning, as we come before the Word this morning in this farewell address, I want you to know my message is heavy application this morning. I'm not going to dig deep into uh, all the different things because quite frankly, I don't think Paul is wanting us to dig deep. I I think he wants us to see his heart. I think he wants us to hear his love and his passion, not only for his life, but for what is to come after he is gone. This morning, I want to look under the heading, what it means to leave a legacy. To leave a legacy. And this morning, as we evaluate our own lives and the legacy that we're living, we need to ask the question, what are we doing today that will leave a legacy for tomorrow? But before we do that, let me take a moment and pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it uh, will teach us again this morning. I thank you for Paul's loving example of what it means not only to lead the church. Lord, I pray that there would be modern day Pauls and myself and and the rest of the elder team as we look over the flock under our care that you've entrusted to us. But Lord, even more than that, that we might be a people, every one of us, young and old, might be a people who are living our lives in such a way that we might leave a legacy. Teach us from your words this morning of what it means to live a legacy, so that we may leave something for those who come behind us. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. The word legacy is a fascinating word because it not only speaks about the future, but also of today. The American philosopher William James said, the great use of life is to spend it for something that will outlast you. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Now the first question you have to ask in when you talk about a legacy is, who is the legacy for? And most people that have studied this idea of leaving a legacy say that all of us have a legacy that is probably two generations old. And what that means is, is that we have a legacy for us and we will leave a legacy to others that is about two generations. And the reason why is most of us will serve and and be blessed to serve as parents. And because of that, we will leave a legacy, whether good or bad, to our children. But then because we live as long as we do, and by God's grace given the opportunity, most of us will not only see our children, but our children's children. And so our legacy will go to some, if by great age or young children having kids and getting married, we might see even a third generation. You see, a legacy usually is something that is left by someone that is close to us. And Paul is saying, I'm leaving, and I want to leave a legacy of what church life and the Christian life looks like, so that as I leave, I leave you something that you might then in turn leave to someone else. Because when done right, a good legacy will not just go the second or third generation, but it will go for a thousand generations as people follow that model. You see, the model of the early church left a legacy. A legacy now that generation upon generation, here we are, a globe away, 2,000 years that separate us, and we are still living out and modeling what that early church did and the legacy that they left. But this morning, as we look at the legacy that we're leaving, I want you to recognize this isn't something that you can think about right before you die. 
The inheritance that you give, and I don't mean just an earthly financial inheritance, but the spiritual inheritance that you give to future generations cannot be made in the last moments of your life. But write this down. If you want to leave a legacy, if you want to leave a legacy, then it involves living a legacy today. You see, if you want to leave a legacy for tomorrow, for the future, you can't wait for the future. You've got to start living it today. And so what priorities, what things are you doing today? And, and, and I want you to think forward. Are those things then preparing and positioning that your legacy for tomorrow will be one that will bring glory and honor to God and will be good for all of those who follow in your footsteps? Paul lived a legacy and he was able to leave a legacy for the days and months and years to come because he had done it well. But what was he doing? How was he living that allowed a legacy, a good legacy that is, to be left for those that would come after him? I want you to see six things this morning. Don't be afraid. Six things of what it means for us to live today so that we might leave for tomorrow. And I'm going to walk through our text and and apply principles that I believe that are clearly seen in Paul's life and Paul's example that should serve us well as we seek to leave a legacy, whether for our children or our children's children, but even in a corporate level, that as a church of 2018, what are we doing to position ourselves well for the church that comes in 2088, when we are all long gone? What type of legacy are we leaving that when they look back, will they see a life of faithfulness and obedience? Will they see a life that sought to serve others instead of ourselves? Or are we simply living for the here and now, not thinking of what tomorrow may bring? How we view our legacy for tomorrow will determine the steps that we take today. Notice Paul, first of all, tells us if we want to leave a legacy that honors God tomorrow, we need to start living authentically today. We need to start living authentically today. Notice verse 18. In fact, we'll start uh, in 20, uh, start in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul didn't go to Ephesus, and one of the commentators says the reason why he doesn't go to Ephesus is he knew if he went to Ephesus, he would never leave Ephesus. He loved the people so much. So he gets off the boat in Miletus, and he stays there and says, bring him to me. That way I know that I, I, I'm only here for a short stay, and it'll make the departure far easier. And so he has him come to meet him in Miletus, which wasn't a far journey, maybe a one or two day journey by foot. And they meet him in Miletus. Now going on, it says, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. I want to stop there and tell you that what Paul is saying is that no matter of his accolades were, No matter how great his exposure was to the Christian world, no matter how awesome people saw him, you need to recognize that the church world saw Paul as a superstar. And because of that, Paul could have done a lot of things. Number one, he could have separated himself from people. He could have created an entourage of handlers that would not allow common folk like the Ephesian elders to get around him. He could have distanced himself to give him the space that many celebrities want and desire, but he doesn't do that at all. 
What Paul says is to live authentically, write this down, means to live transparently. To live authentically means that he had to live transparently. Paul says in this verse, you know yourselves how I lived among you the whole time. You saw my comings and goings. You've known my struggles and my issues. You've known my strengths and my accomplishments, but you have fully well know the struggles and the sorrows and the losses in my life. You know my sin. You know the sin that so easily entangles me. And you've held me accountable in that. This isn't the first time that Paul has said that people knew him because he was transparent. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the right, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you're in a pew Bible, you can find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 on page 986. If you don't have a pew Bible and working through your own, you're going to go to your right through the book of Acts into the book of Romans. Uh, into the first and second book of Corinthians, then you're going to get to these smaller books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you're going to find the book of 1 Thessalonians. So hopefully through all that, you have found it. If not, go to the table of contents. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want you to know that transparency was the key to Paul's ministry. And elders, transparency is the key to our ministry. And Christian, transparency is the key to all community. Notice what he says, and I'm just going to kind of move along here. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Go down farther into verse 2. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Go down to verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Go on and and notice in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also is a witness, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. Verse 11, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What Paul is saying is, I have lived my life authentically and transparently before you all. You know everything about me. Now, does that mean that everybody knew every gross detail of Paul's life? No. There is a decorum that we have, that there are certain things, even God himself says, I reveal much about myself to you. I'm a transparent God, but he says there are secret things that I keep unto myself. So listen, what I'm not saying is transparency says, and I don't mean this in a funny way, that we go around being naked in front of everybody. But that there is a sense that the real you is seen by others around you. So let me ask you this question this morning. Paul says, you know the real Paul. I'm not faking things. I'm not acting. You know me. You know my real concerns, my real dreams, my real desires, my real uh, temptations. You know me. Well, let me ask you this question this morning. Do the people closest around you, 
your closest friends, the people you attend church with, your, your, your co-workers that are closest to you, do they know the real you or have they bought into a lie that you've been telling them? Are you transparent? Are you authentic about who you are? The Christian life cannot be lived without authenticity and transparency. And it involves two things if we want it to happen. Write these things down. First of all, you need to have humility. Humility. To be authentic means you have to look at yourself and I have to look at myself with an honest assessment. Paul says, I am a servant of the Lord. I'm not a superstar. Literally, that word servant is I'm a slave to the Lord. I am one who serves a master. If you have any notoriety or any thoughts of grandeur in your life, as a Christian, it should all be put away. Because humility says whatever you are, whatever you do, whatever your paycheck says you're worth, you, at the end of the day, are a bondservant to Christ Jesus. So who cares who's reading your books? Who cares who's speaking your praise? Who cares how many people, Pastor Tim, are in your church? It doesn't matter. You're a bondservant. And when we, with humility, see ourselves that way, it will cause for a second characteristic, and that is honesty. Humility breeds honesty. When I am humble then I am willing to share with others my hurts, my concerns, my, my foibles, my, my struggles. But if I'm trying to live a lie, pride says I can't tell people these things because I have to protect for myself my image, my reputation, or whatever I'm telling people that makes people think I'm better than I really am. Oh, how small groups would be changed if we were an authentic group of people transparent if we were honest and humble about who we were you see it's odd that that as christians we're honest and we say we're all sinners we all struggle with sin but we never talk about the sin we struggle with and so humility tells us that we know we can't have salvation without calling ourselves sinners but there are these nameless sins that we commit before a holy God, that nobody knows them. Now, again, listen, there's wisdom and there's tact. This is Paul speaking to a group of people who are closest to him. So I would not go into a group of people I don't know and say, hey, listen, I'm a sinner. Let me list all of my sins to you in gross details of them. That would be unwise. So the question is, in your circle of influence, do the people that have most involvement with you know who the real you is? And some of us, quite frankly, have, should receive um, Emmy Awards, Academy Awards for the acting job that we're doing, trying to keep a, a role up that we're, not, that we're not really. And I'll tell you, what a sad existence, trying to live someone else's life when the real you is screaming to come out. Paul says, I lived authentically, honestly and humbly before you. Number two, we need to live boldly. We need to live boldly. Moving on, verse 19. He goes on and he says, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Three times, by the way, he would have people coming to try to kill him. It's been recorded in the book of Acts. That doesn't even involve the Gentiles who came after Paul. These are just the plots by the Jews. Now notice what he says. Amidst all of that, I could have quit. 
I could have given up, but notice what the text says. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul had reason to quit. Paul had reason to back it off. Paul had reason to take his foot off the gas, but he doesn't. Now there are three things that would cause Paul anxiety. Paul worry. There are three things that will keep us from living boldly. Write these three things down. Three things that keep us from living boldly for Christ. Number one, trials. Trials or troubles will keep us from living boldly for Christ. They will cause us if you will, to become gun-shy in taking big steps of faith. Because trials and tribulations and troubles will tell us that when we're ready to take a step of faith for God, but wait a minute, what if this happens? Or what if this continues? I better hedge my bets with God, because if I, if I do such and such, what happens when troubles come? The second area that we see that we are called to be bold and it can become difficult is in our testimony. In our testimony, that is that we need to be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and needy world. But in order to do that, we need to recognize that not everybody's always going to say amen when we preach the word. We need to recognize that sometimes people are going to get quite angry with us, quite frustrated with us, that we would be so bold and so willing to speak in a way that's so countercultural to the world and its culture. The third thing that we notice that Paul would want to shrink back from is to not live boldly because of tomorrow. He'll go on and he'll say, listen, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. There's a lot of unknowns. And again, it would be easy for me to give up and quit because even though I don't know the exact extent of what tomorrow's will bring, it has been prophesied to me and it keeps being told to me and was shared with me by the risen Lord and Savior that I was going to experience afflictions and struggles and my past experience says if it's anything like yesterday that my tomorrow is going to be filled with pain and sorrow and beatings and struggle, I might as well give up. But notice in verse 20, And notice in verse 27 that Paul says, I did not shrink back from, and then he talks about what he didn't shrink back from. That word shrink back is the word hupostello in the Greek. And hupostello means to draw back, to retreat. And what Paul says is, I did not retreat in the troubles that I was facing. When troubles came, I didn't retreat in my faith and give up on things or hedge my bets when it was to share the testimony of Jesus Christ through the gospel, I did not hedge in that way. I did not uh, fall back and retreat from the role I was supposed to have. And even with the unknowns of tomorrow, it didn't keep me from living a bold life. The best way to explain hupostello to you is to say it this way. Uh, Look at a turtle. Anytime a turtle feels that it is threatened, it protects itself by retreating back into its shell. Nobody can see it. It's contained within the shell that that will protect it. But no forward movement can happen. 
The turtle can't move. The turtle can't do anything. It's stagnant because its legs and its arms are contained inside of it and it just sits there. Some of us as Christians are shell-shocked turtles and we're not moving forward for the cause of Christ, whether it's because of troubles, whether it's because we're afraid to share the testimony of Jesus Christ, or whether it's because of the anxiety and worries of tomorrow, we have stopped in our forward progress for God, not living boldly for Him. And Paul says, listen, I've not shrunk back. And that's a testimony to all of us that none of us should shrink back. Many of us are in protective Christianity, and nowhere in the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, is protective Christianity mandated or even endorsed or even recommended for Christians. But what is passionate, bold, and confident Christianity that storms the gates of hell, no matter the trouble, no matter who we need to share that testimony with, no matter what tomorrow may bring. Now, how did Paul get that boldness? He got that boldness not to shrink back based on the promises of God. And he articulates these promises in the book of Romans chapter 8, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That God uh, is going to do good in the lives of those He loves and are called according to His purpose. And because of that, He says, listen, if I have the love of Christ in me, if I have the love of Christ moving through me, if I have the love of Christ that is promised to be with me, then I can do whatever, whenever God calls me to serve Him, I can have confidence that He will take care of the rest. My job is to trust and obey. How boldly are we living today? What's holding us back? Is it a trouble or trial that you're facing? Is it, are you not bold in your testimony? A lot of us are going to struggle with hupostello tomorrow at work or tomorrow at school when we go into our proverbial shells instead of preaching and proclaiming when opportunity comes the love of Christ that we have found. We need to live boldly. Number three. And it moves in, in correspondence with us. We need to live intentionally. As we live authentically, and as we live boldly, we position ourselves to live just as Christ called us to live. Notice verses 24 through 27. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not, did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's stop there. As Paul lives authentically and as he lived boldly, it moved him to understand the purpose of his life. Paul speaks very clearly and plainly as to what is the full measure of living life here on earth. To live the full measure of what God has created you and I to live on this earth involves one thing, and Paul articulates it. That is to live with Christ at the center of all things. 
Notice he says, listen, I, I, I'm not going to get anything out of this life. Life has no value, verse um, 24. No value. And it's not very precious to me unless I finish the course that my Creator God, my Savior, has given to me. Here's what I want you to know. Without Christ, listen church, without Christ, this life is worthless. But wait a minute, pastor. I find this joy and this peace and, and this fun and this pleasure here in, the, in this life. Yep. And those are good things. But if you feast upon the good things, you will never enjoy the greater things that God has for you when Christ is at your center. You see, this is the whole issue of idolatry. The good becoming great. It's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy good things. It is to never allow the pursuit of the good life here to keep us from the great life in Christ that He has ordained for us to live. And so young person, recognize this morning, without Christ, my life has no value. Old person, recognize, without Christ, my life has no value. Poor or rich, male or female, new to the faith, old to the faith, or still searching for the faith, your life without Christ is worthless. Listen, you and I become base animals that live go about our habitat eating and drinking and living life, thinking we've enjoyed all of it, only to die and there's nothing left. But if we know Christ, and Christ has called us into a relationship with Him, let's recognize what Jesus said, I have come to give you life and to give it not just ordinary life, but life in all abundance. So what Jesus is calling us to is what Paul is saying. If I don't have Jesus in this life, I've got nothing. And so I'm going to live differently. And I'm going to take what I've learned, that living life without Christ is nothing in this world. I'm going to take that message to a lost world that needs it. And Paul shares something in the text that seems really, really weird. Notice in verse 20, he says, i got to turn the page here again. He says, in verse 26, Therefore, <clears throat> I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. What? What's he talking about? Why is he talking about innocence and guilt of others? Write in your outlines, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33 Verses 7 and 8. Ezekiel 33, verses 7 and 8. I'll read it for you. And you can look back upon it if you'd like to later in your study. But this is what God says, and this is what Paul is alluding to, and it has massive implications on how we live life intentionally for the gospel. Here's what Ezekiel um, is told by God. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you, watchmen, do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require you, watchmen. 
Let me, let me just read that again. So you son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you should not speak to warn them, watchmen, for the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will remain on your hands. What's he saying there? What God is saying to Ezekiel is that, Ezekiel, the, you live in a house. And Ezekiel, I've made you the watchman of the house. And Ezekiel, be aware that there's enemies all about the house. And when I tell you, Ezekiel, that enemies are coming and destruction for all those in the house is impending or at hand, your job is to take the message that I've given and declare to all in the house, get ready, prepare yourselves, destruction is nigh, Now, whether or not they believe you or heed you is not your issue. That's their problem. But you become guilty, watchmen, when you aren't warning people of the impending doom that's coming their way. Paul sang, I did not shrink back from you and boldly testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as a watchman, I am no longer guilty if you find yourself in hell. Which begs the question for us this morning, who in our close inner circle of people that we know, whether our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, our classmates, those we are involved with at the workout facility that we go to each day, those that we spend most time with, when they get to heaven and stand before God and are asked the question, Did you trust my son as your savior? While their sin will be the very essence of what puts them into an eternity of hell, will they be able to say, nobody warned me. Nobody told me of the impending doom. Nobody told me. And will they not wonder why the Christian that was sitting next to them in the cubicle for years at the company house or the classmate who went to school with you for year year after year class after class not say why didn't he do it will your neighbors announce to us he shoveled my garage but he never showed me the way of salvation it is there my friends that you and I will be guilty of having blood on our hands And that should grip us with great fear and trepidation. That we would live life with people and never once declare to them the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying, I love you so much that even if my articulation of this gospel makes our relationship strained here, at least you'll be warned of the impending train that's coming down the track that is going to destroy you and everybody else in its wake. So get off the track. A train's coming. What friend or close associate has never heard the gospel? I want you to know, and I don't mean this, I do mean this in a guilty way. There's no way around it. There's blood on your hands and mine. 
Because we have not been the watchman God's called us to. And you say, well, I'm not an evangelist. That's fine. You don't need to be an evangelist. That is, you don't need to dedicate your life to the, to the public proclamation of God's word. But if you were to see a friend on the railroad tracks and saw an impending train coming, knowing, knowing that that train will meet your friend and your friend will lose that battle every day, you're not going to say, well, it's not my gift to tell him. I haven't been gifted that way. Listen, that's malarkey. You scream, you yell, you warn, get off the track. Hell, damnation, fire, and brimstone are coming your way. And I love you too much to not let that happen. C.S. Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, said this, and it burns in my heart. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish... Let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Who right now is a sinner on their way to hell that you live life every day with, that you've not warned of the calamity that's coming their way. We need to live intentionally by being gospel carriers to the world around us. Number four, we need to live carefully. We need to live carefully. Paul turns his attention now most specifically on the elders, and I share this now to my fellow elders. And he says the following in verse 32. Not verse 32. Am I right here? Verse th- I'm always in the wrong passage here, my friends. Sorry about that. He says the following. Okay, verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 28. Be careful. I'm sorry. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that my departure... After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arrive men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. There's the legacy component among all those who are sanctified. Paul speaks to the elders, as I do right now, and he says, you are leaving a legacy. But your legacy isn't for tomorrow's generations, it's for today's church. And so he says, be careful. That is, pay close attention. This idea is specifically to have constant evaluation of your own life. To be worried about where your spiritual soul is at. I wrote this down and I think it's so appropriate for our day. Sadly, far too many churches have surrounded themselves by pastors who preach great sermons, but sadly fall to greater sins. And I said, I pray, Lord, by your grace alone that that will never be said of me in my ministry. We need to understand as elders that our lives are important because others are seeking to follow after us. 
Elders, our marriages are important because there are marriages in our church that are seeking to model them after our own. Our parenting is important, elders, because there are those who are looking and saying, who can I look to who are models for godly parenting? Our money management is important because there are those in our flock that are looking and saying, what does it mean for a Christian to manage his money? I will look to the elders before me and see how they do it. Richard Baxter wrote a book to elders and pastors, and he said the following, which is so appropriate today, take heed to yourselves, elders, lest you perish while you call upon others to take heed of perishing. Unless you famish yourselves or you prepare their food. Notice what he's saying. He says, be careful lest you perish while you are using and, and spending your life calling upon others to not perish. Lest you famish yourself, you go hungry while you prepare food for everyone else. What a terrible thing for the men of this church and the couples of this church that have been called to elder to look over everybody else's life in the process, not looking after their own. So what he says is we need to be careful. Now I want you to notice something, elders, when I'm talking specifically to you. Your greatest enemy is not your critic. Your greatest enemy is not the troublemaker in the church. Your greatest enemy is not an opponent. It's not an unbelieving world. It's not the devil. It's not a wayward congregation. Brothers, listen to me very carefully. Elders of Village Bible Church, your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy is ourselves. Because we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are right. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we are holy. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are doing the right work in the right time and in the right way, all together building kingdoms for ourselves. And so when I focus too much on pleasing self, when I make altogether too much about myself, I destroy my own life. And when an elder destroys his own life, he begins to destroy the flock under his care. Elders, we have been given a foster ministry. We have been given a group of people that are not our own. The Bible says in our text that this flock is Jesus's that he obtained with his own blood. And he has given us foster care. And we are to take care of and meet the needs and, and pray and, and, and be concerned about the needs of the flock under our care. But if we don't take care of ourselves, we are no good to the flock around us. In fact, we are a cancer to their very bones. So elders, pay close attention not only to the flock, to yourself, but the flock under your care. And what that means is, elders, we cannot be spiritual policemen who go around handing demerits to people. Oh, you blew it there. Oh, you blew it there. I'm so glad I'm an elder, and elders don't act that way, baloney. But that according to Galatians 6.1, we are a rescue patrol that goes out finding people that have fallen into sin, and we help them in love and in mercy and in grace to pull themselves out of their sin, all the while being careful, holding on to other elders so that we ourselves don't fall into the same pit. Live carefully 
And what is good for the leaders of the church is good for all of us. Let me ask you this morning, Christian, if you want to leave a legacy for tomorrow, you can't keep getting tripped up today. So what sin, what issue, what obstacles keeping you from a godly legacy that you can leave your children and your children's children? We have to live carefully because as the text says, not everything that glitters is gold. Not every little lammy around us is a lamb. But in fact, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so we need to be on guard and ready. We need to be careful not to fall for the traps of the devil. Because the more we fall into traps, the less we have opportunity to lay forth a legacy for tomorrow. Number five, we need to live generously. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands, he's talking of his own hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says this, and this is probably the most important takeaway of all that we do because it encompasses all of it. You and I will never leave a legacy if we consume more than we give. I will not have an inheritance for my children or for my children's children if I eat up all that I have for myself and have nothing left for anyone else. In fact, the Bible says that when a man does that, he is worse than an infidel. He's as low as low. How can you consume all that you have and take and take and take and never give, especially to your family? And so Paul says, let us not forget the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is better to give than to receive. So let me ask you this morning, are you giving more than you're taking? Now, of course, the question is a financial one. And Paul is being reminded that these people have just given a large amount of money to take care of the needs of a Jewish congregation. And so these Gentiles have given to a group of Jews who in many ways can't stand Gentiles, but they've given so that others may be taken care of. And he's reminding them it's better to give than to receive. But what a reminder for us this morning. And let me ask you in your life and in my life, spouses, in your marriage, are you taking more than you give? I will tell you, if you have two spouses or really even one spouse that's taking more than they give, it will become a cold marriage. It will not be a marriage of love. It will be a, 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 a zone of combat. Parents, are you giving more than you're taking from your kids? Kids, and I'm talking to junior high and high school and college age kids when I say this, are you giving more than you take from your parents? We've got selfish kids around, but I want to remind parents we've got selfish parents around as well. Where my TV show or my football game or my pursuit or my desire is more important than spending time with my kids. And kids, maybe you, you think the world revolves around you and you have no idea what your parents are sacrificing on your behalf. It is important. It is better to give than to receive. How about at work? Paul makes mention of it. 
Work with your hands so that you can provide for yourself, so that nobody else has to take care of you. So are you going into tomorrow saying, it is better to give than receive? I'm going to stop leading with what do I get in my paycheck and ask the question, how can I give to my boss? How can I give to my company that they may say, wow, what a difference that person is. I'm so glad we have them there. It isn't just about a paycheck, but it's about what they can do for us as a company moving forward. How about in your neighborhood, in the church, with regards to ministry? Is it bad to receive? No, it's good. I've received a lot of great things, and there's some great good that comes from those things that are given. But as has been said by a very famous writer, good is the enemy of great. And sometimes we enjoy the good so much that we never get to the great and you've maybe been receiving from God and receiving from others and that's good but God wants to give you the great and what he's saying is start giving to others and why does he bring up Jesus because Jesus is the example that Jesus never took but he always gave right what did he get in return? Shame and sorrow and, and anger and resentment and, and uh, being spat upon and beaten and abused and hung on a cross for our sins, not his own. What did we give him? All of that. What did he give us? An indescribable gift of salvation. And so as Christians, it is far better for us to be like Jesus than to be like sinners, right? To give than to be on the receiving end. Finally, we need to live affectionately. Verses 36 through 38, and I will close. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, that is, they hugged him and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. When I said that last word, ship, all the people in the first service closed their Bibles. Don't do that. Amen. Okay? This is important. Who is your legacy for? I want you to write down, who do you love most? Write that down. Write down some names of people you love most. And I don't want you just to think of the people in the here and now. They're important. So on my list, I would have names like Amanda and Noah and Joshua and Luke I'd have my nieces and my nephews, my brothers and my sisters. I'd have my parents in there. But a legacy is for tomorrow. And so now I need to start thinking, okay, my boys are going to get married one day. And they're going to have kids. And I don't know what their names are, but grandbaby A, grandbaby B, grandbaby 357. Okay? Who are the people at my workplace that I want to leave a legacy with? My employees' names would be there. The staff of this church would be in there. Write down some names on that list. I'm telling you, write down some names. Who are the people closest to you? Because that is the people that will be most impacted by your legacy. Paul says, I want to leave a legacy to those that I love, those that I hug, those that I kiss, those that I embrace, those that I'm sorrowful when I see them leave for the last time and I'll never see them again. And so a legacy is an affectionate way of saying, I love you. I love you so much, you mean so much to me, that what I leave you, whether I am here in the body or gone for forever, I want to leave you an inheritance, something that will lead you and guide you closer to Jesus. 
And so those names that you've written, let me ask you this question as I close. How are you living today that best positions those people you've written down to be closer to God as a result? What are you doing now to radiate the love of Christ and the passion of Christ to them so that when they stand before God, maybe even in their sin, that they can say with with confidence and boldness, listen, I rebelled against you, Jesus, but it wasn't because Tim or so-and-so didn't tell me that you were Lord and Savior and I needed to bow the knee to you every time I saw them. They warned me and I didn't listen. But how awesome will it be that when we get to heaven and people we've never met before will come and say, you didn't know it, but I came to know Jesus because of you. You didn't know it, but because of your example in someone else's life, I came to know Jesus and I walk with Jesus and I talk with Jesus now because of the legacy you left. Paul says, I don't even know who this is going to impact, but I want to leave a legacy that points people to Jesus and brings people to heaven. You want to leave a legacy? Then commit right now to living one today.